But I would like to introduce to you, uh, this is Lauren, and uh, Lauren is a, is a fantastic young lady from England, and uh, she leads Cam Vineyard, which is in Cambridge, and uh, she's planted the church a year and a half ago, and uh, she's done that by herself, uh, together with a team of other people, but an incredibly courageous young lady. We've had the pleasure of spending the weekend with her, and uh, she loves Jesus passionately. There's loads of other stuff that's great about her, but, uh, but I'd say that's probably the thing that's um, struck me the most, which has been wonderful. So um, let's pray for Lauren as she prepares and gets herself ready to uh, speak to us. So Lord, thank you for her. Thank you for everything that you've done in her. And um, God, whatever you've placed upon her heart now, I pray that you would uh, speak powerfully through her to us. Give us open ears and hearts to receive. Amen. Thank you. Um, so good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here, and thank you so much for, for having me. I always love coming and speaking at other churches. I, I kind of get invited to speak at other churches quite a lot, which is such a privilege for me. And I love it because it's almost like um, we're like bees and we kind of carry nectar from one place to another. So I hope that in me coming here that you'll see a life that you haven't seen before because I'm carrying something from Cambridge here. And likewise, I'm hoping that I would kind of take something back and I would see a new life that I haven't seen back in Cambridge. So I hope that that happens and I love that, that we get to do that, that we are God's chosen people to spread the kingdom. I mean, it's to, to spread the gospel and increase the kingdom. I think that's just absolutely brilliant. So as I understand it, <coughs> you are in a series to do with healing. And so I wanted to share with you about the last couple of years of my life and planting the church in Cambridge and how healing has happened in my life um, and the things that have happened with that. But to say that, I want to share quite openly and quite honestly about some of the terrible things that have happened as well. Because in order to explain to you how amazingly God has healed my soul, I need to explain the other stuff. Is that okay? Okay, so bear with me if I start to kind of tear up and get a lump in my throat or anything. Just bear with me. We'll go through this together. Okay. The day we decide to give our lives to Jesus, we are marked. Like how the Israelites' homes were marked with the blood of Jesus and then right through in Revelation where it talks about as believers, we are marked or we have a seal on us. As believers, we are marked and in being marked, we are protected with something more powerful than we ever could believe or imagine. However, this mark which we get also becomes a target. The day that we decide to give our lives to Jesus, we get a target, and that target is a target for the enemy. It becomes like a bullseye to him. Have you ever done something good, and then something terrible happens right away? Or something terrible happens, and then you get a blessing <coughs> after you have endured it? Have you ever served God in some way, gone above and beyond to look like Jesus and to speak like Jesus, to act like Jesus, and you think you are doing the right thing, and then you say, God, where is my favor right now? Because this does not look like favor. 
in our lives, we will get trials and we will get tribulations. The Bible is certain about that. And that's because we are marked with this target from the enemy whilst we are marked with the blood of Jesus. I remember when I first got asked to join staff at West Suffolk Vineyard. So I used to work uh, for a church in Bury St. Edmunds where our church planted out of. <coughs> and they talked about doing this to me. They were like, we don't want to do this to you. And I was like, well, what are you on about? And they were like, you have no idea what's coming your way. And actually, some of the leaders came up to me and they said, we've had murmurings in the church. And people are saying, how can you do this to this young lady? You don't know what you're putting her, putting her into. You're like literally throwing her under the bus. Um, and I was like, this is cool. Like, I can handle this. This is God. Like, he's great. He's bigger than this. And then about a week after being on staff, and at this point, nobody knew. I wasn't technically on staff. About a week after I'd been asked to join staff, I got um, rushed into hospital with a mystery illness, which to this day, they still not know what it was. And there was something wrong with my stomach. There was lots of different things wrong in my blood. But they did scans. They did x-rays. They did internal um, observations. I was on a morphine drip for like four days. They had no idea what it was. <laughs> And so I had the, the church coming, the, the leaders coming and sitting and praying with me. But the battle suddenly became real to me. The battle that we are in suddenly became real. And throughout the last kind of the first year of church planting, I thought that I'd seen some pretty um, big battles in my life, but nothing like what I experienced in that year. The people that I thought were going to be there for me, quite frankly, weren't. My partner, my best friend, and my worship leader all left me in that first year of church planting. And some of them left me in some pretty explosive ways and pretty hurtful ways, and which left damage, which even after healing, I still carry the scars from, if I'm being totally honest with you. Jesus heals, but we have scars. And actually, do you know what? Sometimes those scars, we can even look at them one way. We can look at them and say, this is a scar where I've been hurt, or we can look at a scar and say, this is where Jesus has healed. And so I stand from a place now where I am scarred. I tell you my heart is scarred. But those scars are a witness of God's great healing and not the attack that I went under. My whole world was turned upside down in that year. It was shaken inside out and I didn't know which end was up. But there are three things that I want to talk about which brought healing in that year. And the first thing that I want to talk about is Jesus. Good place to start, right? I remember in this painful season, so many people saying to me, stay close to Jesus, cling to Jesus. And I remember thinking one thing, which actually at times, when you're in that kind of place of pain, you say things that you wouldn't normally otherwise say. So sometimes I was a bit brutally honest. <laughs> and I remember saying to people, like, are you actually stark raving bonkers? Of course I'm clinging close to Jesus. I was just like, if I don't cling to Jesus... I ain't got nothing right now. Everything has been taken from me. If I haven't got Jesus, there's nothing else. Um, so I remember being quite rude to people when they were saying that to me. I was just like, love, you got no idea how close I'm clinging to him. Um, in the Bible, in Psalm 18.2, it says this, The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And in those times, they're the times we can cling to Jesus. But the truth is, because my faith was so rooted in him, that when the time come, I wasn't far from him, that I needed to just touch his garment and just cling to him. 
We need to stick close to him because there will be a time when we will face trials and we will face tribulations. And in those moments, we are going to need to cling to him and be near him. The Lord was my rock. He was my fortress. He was my shield. He was the only thing which I had any hope of being delivered from that darkness that I was in. He was my only hope that I had of any protection from further damage to to the people that, um, that I loved and thought loved me. He had to be my stronghold because I was weak and nothing and nobody else was going to be my strength. So I cried out and I prayed. I lamented and I wept at the feet of Jesus every morning, every moment that I got home from work and every evening and truth be told, sometimes partway through the day. I remember on one occasion that someone, I work with adults with learning disabilities, and on one occasion, one of the adults with learning disabilities, she just, she just came up to me, she's about this high, um, and uh, her name's Christine Jackson, and I call her Jacko, like Michael Jackson, um, so she just came, Jacko came up to me, and she just put her arms around me, and she just went, I love you, darling. And I was just like, oh, I had to run to the toilet. So I was like, do you know what? Right now I feel like no one loves me. So you saying that to me just broke me. So I just wept, like I say, every morning, as soon as I came from work, every evening. And truth be told, on the weekends, pretty much all day, Saturday and Sunday, I just wept at the feet of Jesus. I clung to him and I prayed and I cried out from that dark place. In Romans 6.19, we read, you see, certain, you see, certain hope of our future salvation is an anchor to steady our souls when we wait on God in present storms. He is our anchor. No matter what storm we're in, he is our anchor. And so we just hold tight to that, to that truth, until the storm passes. And it will pass. It will pass. And I remember sitting with my friend on my sofa after she had lost her second child. Um, both times miscarrying. Following that, she said um, some not, she made some not so great decisions with her life. I could see that her heart was utterly broken, and like me, she did not know which end was up. She was in the middle of a storm. Knowing that she was finding church hard and that I hadn't seen her there much, I remember asking her how her relationship was with Jesus, and I remember her saying the answer. If I do not have this to believe in, then Lauren, I have nothing. In her book, Boundless, Danielle Strickland talks about a conversation she has with a friend. She describes how her friend believes that religion is for, for people who are weak. Religion is for the weak, she says to Danielle. And Danielle replies with this in her book. When she told me that, I was relieved. You see, sometimes people try to tell others that religion slash salvation is for confident, strong, able people, but it isn't. Jesus said that it was for the broken, the weak, the blind, the lame, and the suffering. So I simply replied to my friend that I was so glad that she understood what salvation is and that it was for the weakest of the Christians. And then she goes on to write this. Jesus wasn't just a crutch. He was my wheelchair. And apart from him, I'd almost likely be dead. And I have to be honest with you and say that in that year, in that time of darkness, I honestly wanted to end my life. It got that terrible. But I just knew that I couldn't. 
My life had been given to me by a creator who created this beautiful landscape, which you have here in Ireland. I mean, it's just beautiful. You have to step outside. And I don't understand how people can believe that, that God isn't real when you look outside. And knowing that he had created me, I couldn't give up on him. He wasn't just my crutch. He was my wheelchair. And he was my wheelchair until I could stand. When we have Jesus, we have something. We will always have something. And not just something, we have someone. We are not alone. Sometimes when we cry out to Jesus, we want him to take us out of that place. And for some time, he doesn't do that. Because truth be told, we're not strong enough to move from that place. So what Jesus does in the loving, gentle way that he is, Rather than removing us in a way that would be far too painful, you know, like if you've got a broken leg and you move or a broken back and you move, you're going to do more damage. So what Jesus does is he comes and he sits with us. He holds our hand and he sits with us until healing starts to come. And then when it comes, he walks with us. And then when we begin to walk, he calls us to run. Jesus picks us up when we cannot stand. He holds our hand when we cannot walk and encourages us to run when the time comes. I remember speaking to my mentor in the States one night on Messenger and we were talking about where I was at. I was really honest with her and I said that life was hard and I didn't know what I believed except that I knew one thing, that Jesus was real. It said how I was struggling with God and his supposed goodness and when life was so rough, and I remember just spitting verse after verse at her, and I was like, his goodness is meant to follow me. I don't see any goodness. He's meant to be this. He's meant to be that. And I just remember just like verse after verse saying that this is who God says he is, and I do not see it. And she was just so loving. She just went, that's okay. She said, but you do know that Jesus is real. I was like, yes, I do. And she said, just keep praying, hold on to that truth. And she said to me, there's one thing that she said to me, she said, Lauren, there is only one way here. He said, the only way is through. And that was such a profound word for me, the only way is through. And so this leads me conveniently onto where I want to dig into the Bible today, where we're going to look at the story of Moses. So those of you who might be new or less familiar um, with, with the Bible or the story of Moses, Moses was born in, a, uh, in an Israelite family, but gets uh, brought up by Pharaoh, returns to his own people where he gives, given the mission by God to go back to the, to the new Pharaoh, who was basically kind of like his brother growing up, and asks him to let God's people, who are the Egyptian slaves, which are um, Moses' own people, to let them go free. After many plagues, Pharaoh eventually does, and Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and then they get to the sea. And that's where we read this. And so, actually, I'm going to chop half of it. Um, I'm going to just read from Exodus 14, 5 to 31. So if you've got your Bibles or you've got it in an app, whatever it is, then if you want to read along with me, that would be great. So, Exodus 14, 5 to 31. Here we go. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? 
So this is where he's let them go and then he just changes his mind. We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the, to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, uh, today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. I love that. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of the Isra Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. So coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on, on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the, the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the, the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and it, at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing to, towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flooded uh, flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. 
What an incredible story of just God's salvation. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I was preaching the other week in my church about how we need to read our Bible. I mean, if that is not a story to make us read our Bible, I don't know what is. It has got everything, hasn't it? It's brilliant. And we can think of this story and that it might, and it was great, and they were rescued. But if you stop to think about it and how terrible, actually, and terrifying that would have been for them, the strong winds and the walls on either side of them would have been really quite scary. But to them, their only way was through. The only way was to go through. Sometimes in our lives, we want to run. We don't want to do it. They say to Moses, we don't want to do this. We won't go here. We want to be back there. But Moses says, come on. The Lord has said the only way is through. He is with us. He is with us. God is with us in the through. In 13, uh, 21 to 22, 22, it says, uh, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud or, um, by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. It will be scary. There are things in our life that we do not want to go through, but he is behind us and he is before us and he is for us. God was with them. He was before them. He was behind them. And he was with them. Sometimes we might not want to do it, but he is in the through. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So then my second thing I want to say is prayer. There is one thing above all else which will bring healing to us, and that is prayer. I met with a pastor of another church around that time who, interesting, in my same city, who interestingly had gone through similar events in his life and his church that I had gone through. Then recently, just about a month ago, um, I held a, a women's conference, and he's an amazing theological teacher, and, and him being the, the one church who reached out to me to welcome me into the city and to say, well, I'm really pleased that you're here. There was only one person that I wanted to, to come and speak. I really wanted to have a man's voice come and do this. And he spoke theologically about women in leadership. And so we were just having a meeting and we were catching up. And both of us just kind of looked at each other. And um, I think I said it first. I was just like, you look really different and you're speaking really different. And he said the same back to me. And he asked me and he said, Lauren, what is the one thing that has changed how did you get out of that place? And actually, funnily enough, when we were with the leaders the other night, Chantelle asked me the same question. She said, what, how did you get out of that darkness? But in that moment that he asked me, having not a chance to think about it, I just said prayer. Prayer was the thing that got me out of it. That was the one thing. That was the one word I gave him, just prayer. Every time that Moses was turned away from Pharaoh, and <coughs> plagues were sent. <coughs> that was a consequence because Moses went to God. Every time that he was turned away from Pharaoh, he turned back to God. Time after time, he was turned away. But time after time, he turned to God. 
In our lives, we might have to keep persevering, keep pushing forward, but we must keep turning to God, no matter what comes. You know, um, in that time, it was really, really hard to speak to God. There were so many rituals that you had to go through in a tent, and it was a certain person. You had to kill this and do that. and oh. We don't have to do that anymore. We have Jesus. Any moment of any day, any hour, we have Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And do we use it? No. And I count myself in that. I'm not pointing a finger at you, church. I count myself in that. Do I call on Jesus the amount that I should do? No. I really don't. Moses, every single time he turned back to God, and do you know what? This must be our gut reaction, that when we are going through something difficult, rather than grumbling about it, that we turn to God. We turn to Jesus. He is with us. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And Pete Gregg, who started the 24-7 prayer movement, he agrees with this as well. And he says that prayer is our oxygen. We need oxygens to keep the body moving, to keep everything going in our body. We need prayer to keep our bodies moving. Prayer is our oxygen. Once our prayer life changes, our bodies change. And when we change, the world around us changes. To talk intimately with God in this way was God's original plan. When he created Adam and Eve, he walked with them in the cool of the day and he spoke with them. But unfortunately, because of sin, it got in the way and that didn't happen. But God has been on a rescue mission ever since to have that same relationship with us. That relationship and that closeness that he had with Adam and Eve, he wants with us. Which is why he did the most desperate thing of all and sent his only son to die for us. And so in Jesus' coming, we have this relationship. And I know that most of you know this, but yet we're just not accessing it. We are not talking with Jesus, with the Father, in the way that I believe that we are called to do. He died so that we might do this. At any moment in our day, we can call on him, our helper, and he comes I want to ask you, that situation that you are in, that dead-end job, that addiction that you have, that partner who is not treating you well, that boss who is not treating you well, that family member that is just painful, have you prayed about it as much as you talked about it? And have you prayed about it more than you have talked about it? And yes, you might be saying to me, Lauren, I have prayed about it, but it has not changed. I remember one of my conversations <coughs> with that mentor in America <coughs> um, and uh, his, her husband, so the two of them mentor me, and I remember I said to him, how long is this going to go on for, Steve? <laughs> I'm done. I remember crying out in prayer, and I cannot, I cannot count the amount of times that I said, God, I'm done. I am done. That was the phrase that I kept saying. And I said, how long is this going to go on for? And he said to me, he said, Lauren, when I planted the church... He said, my depression lasted five years. I was like, Steve, that is not the answer I want to hear. <laughs> I cannot do this for five years. However, reading the story of Moses, something changed for me. In Exodus 14, 17, and actually throughout the story of Exodus, this is just one of the times, 
It says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And I stand before you now telling quite openly about my story because I know the glory that will come. That my brokenness will come and that is a cost, but it will come for salvation. And there is nothing more that I want in this world than for everyone to know Jesus and have salvation. And if that means that I went through a year of hell, do you know what? I'd do it again. I really would. If it means that there are more life saved and more people in the kingdom, I would do it. For God's glory, I would do it. His glory will be made known through your brokenness. I promise you that. I promise you. And it might even be on your deathbed that one of your children comes to know Jesus. But I promise you that that thing that you are going through right now, which feels like utter hell, and you are crying out to the Lord saying, why is this happening this to me? Why me, your chosen person, why is this happening? I promise you that his glory will come. It will. It will. And so it is worth it. God hardens Pharaoh's, hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his glory could be made known. Keep pressing into God because when the time comes, his glory will be made known through you. Isn't that wonderful that you get to be chosen to be a light to this city, to your people, to your family, that his glory will be made known. Prayer works, people. Not always, not at the right time, but by Gove it works. And do you know what? I am willing to pray all the time if just 0.0.1% of those prayer works. It works. So I'm going to try, right? That's worth the gamble. We lose nothing in praying. It's, you know, there's no great cost in just saying, Jesus, would you come into this? Would you help me in this? That's not, you know, you're not really putting that much out there. But actually prayer works more often than that. We know that it does. I mean, all of us here can probably have a testimony of a time where prayer has worked in our lives. So it's a pretty good gamble. So we need to be praying more, church. Sometimes it is only by the power of prayer which we can bring the breakthrough which we so desperately need. However, sometimes we just can't do it, right? Sometimes the storm is too wrong and our bodies are too weak and we just can't do it. Which brings me on to my third point. So we need Jesus, we need prayer, and we need people. We need others. That's why we need church. I was just, we were just talking earlier, and I was saying that I read a statistic recently that said um, people, come into, people come to church um, statistically one in three. And at the moment, that's what's happening. But actually, I want to say, church, if we come to church one in three, we're not getting the level of and depth of intimacy in our friendships that actually is going to benefit us. Regardless of the fact that actually, as a church, you know, we want to see you. We want, to, we want you to be a part of this. This is the way that we're intended to do life and do family. But actually, for us... We need church. We need to be coming more than one in three, guys, if we're going to build the level of intimacy with which the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, is called to be. One day, he's going to come back. He's going to come back, and he's going to speak to the bride of Christ. And we need to be ready, and we need to be doing that through living life intimately with one another. 
You may have heard it, heard it said, how can you ever expect anyone to love you when you don't love yourself? I'm sorry, yes, there are times that that is true, but actually I think that that's not totally true. <laughs> I think that if you look at Jesus, I don't see that. I see Jesus coming and being with people who didn't love themselves. That's what he did, right? He came and sat with people and loved them until they loved themselves. We only need to look at the woman at the well or Zacchaeus or the woman caught in adultery or Levi the tax collector, the lepers. The list goes on. They didn't love themselves. Outwardly, some of them might have tried to pretend that they did, but they didn't. That's why Jesus came to them. But it was Jesus, their friend, their friend, our friend Jesus, that loved them into loving themselves. And it is our friends who will help us to love us into loving ourselves. It was my friends who chose to love me in my darkest moments that brought me to a place of light. To have family and friends who will speak truth over us, our calling and our mission and our identity, that is true friendship. And that cannot happen coming to church once a month, not being part of a small group, not serving in church. That is how friendships are built, when we do life together. When I was going through my really tough moments, some of or a lot of the things I was going through, I didn't share. Because it's the deadliest poison in our church. One of the deadliest poisons is shame. I was so ashamed that the shame had silenced me. I was so ashamed that these things were happening to me that I didn't tell anyone. But as we read back in Genesis, God tells us that it is not good for man to be alone. God knew better. At this time in my life, every day I was struggling, but particularly Sundays. And I think there was a, <laughs> there was a reason that Sundays were the hardest, let's be honest, because that was when I was kind of going out to, to preach. For several Sundays, I wept, unable to think about anything other than my all-consuming darkness. I remember sitting morning after morning, so we have church at four o'clock in the afternoon. I remember sitting morning after morning in a heap, in a ball, in my bathroom, sobbing and crying out to God. I just didn't want to do church anymore, and quite frankly, I didn't want to do life anymore. But church was so painful because it reminded me of all of the people who had left me and how all of my hope and my vision had gone. It was hard. Then one day, the strangest thing happened, which honestly changed my life. God stepped in. My friend Hannah came from my home church, and although we were friends when I was back in my home church, we kind of lost our, our closeness of our, our friendship a little bit, with me planting a church and <coughs> her serving in that church there. She came home from church one day, and she lay on her sofa, and she just wept, and she wept, and she wept. And... Um, if any of you are kind of young adults, sometimes when you're single and you're a young adult, after church it can be quite hard. And she was like, oh, yeah, I just feel really alone. Everyone's with their families. And she was like, no, hang on a minute. That isn't the reason why I'm crying. And so she's like, God, why am I crying? And he said, just stay, stay there. Just lay on that sofa and just keep crying. So I was like, okay. So she's there and she's just weeping, heart crying out to God and weeping weekend. She just went, enough. She said, God, this is enough. Why am I crying? And God said, call Lauren. And she called me up and she told me what had happened. And like I say, we hadn't spoken for months. And I just burst out into tears on the phone. I said, this is what's going on in my life. And she said, why didn't you tell anyone? I said, I'm just so ashamed. 
that I as a leader have allowed someone to do this to me. It's just like, that is, I was about to say a word I shouldn't say. <laughs> I'm in Ireland, I don't know whether I can say these things. <laughs> in Cambridge, I can say them. Rubbish, okay, I was about to say a word worse than that. Paul says that, use, argu- uses that word arguably, depends on theology. But um, <laughs> that it was utter rubbish. My life was rubbish. And I was just like, Hannah, I don't know what to do. And she said, I'm coming. She said, I'm in my car and I'm coming. So she, drew, she drove over and she just held me and she said, what can I do? And I said, just hold me. Just pray for me. And we sat for hours and she said nothing. She didn't judge me. She didn't give me any advice. I didn't ask for any. I didn't want any. But she just sat me, we, with me in the way that Jesus would. And that is just the most beautiful picture of the way that we are meant to do life. There is a dark spirit affecting our generation. And by our generation, I want to speak to a moment for those in our 20s and 30s. And this is a spirit of individualism. It says, I want to be different. It says, I don't want to follow the status quo. It says, I can be spiritual and that's okay. It says, I can go to yoga and drink my flat white and have my paleo dinner and with my side of kombucha and life is okay. It says I can drink whatever I want, however much I want, whenever I want. It says I can have sex with my partner because I love Jesus and that's okay. It says I can have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want, because, well, quite frankly, it's love. It says I can wear whatever I want because, well, quite frankly, it's my body. There is a spirit of individualism which we are not called to live by. Grace means that God has been and will always be there for us. But we cannot abuse this gift. If you are in a relationship, you treat them well. If you're in a relationship, you respect them. If you love them, you spend time with them. There is a false spirit in our generation which says, I don't need Jesus in my everything. It says, I need Jesus. But he's okay over there while I'm here. Until the time that I need him, then I'll go over there. We can't live this way, church. It's not the way that we are called to do life. And do you know what? It's the same spirit which says the same thing about people. I don't need anyone else. It's just me. I'm good. I'm strong enough. I don't need anyone else. Until the time comes when, do you know what? I'm just going to go over here and just kind of get to know you a little bit better and then just unload all of this stuff on you. I don't need anyone else. I don't need Jesus. I'm fine. I've got this. That is not the way that we are called to do life. And we can survive, but I tell you what, we will not thrive. Without Jesus and without people, we will not thrive. Once they had crossed the sea and an army were coming after them, Moses held up his hand and the army would stop. However, whenever Moses dropped his hands, the Amalekites started to advance. In Exodus 17, 10 to 13, we read this. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were, were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands got tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held, held his hands up, one on, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. 
Moses needed, not just one person to hold up his hand, but he needed two people to hold up his hand. We need to hold up each other, church. We need to say, I need your help. It's okay to ask for help. Moses needed his friends to lift his hands so that, um, so that the, uh, the, the army could be defeated. And Jesus himself needed his friends. When he went up to the mountain of transfiguration, he took his closest friends with them, with him. The night before his death, he asked his friends to stay up and pray with him. Jesus needed his friends. We need to learn to do life differently, folks. We need to learn to do life intimately and openly, hiding nothing back, hiding nothing, holding nothing back. Unless you are living in this way, let me tell you, you are seriously missing out. There is a beauty which comes from doing life intimately like this. If you are sitting here and you are feeling surrounded yet alone, if you are feeling convicted of something, yet you have said nothing to nobody, then you need to find someone to do life with. Come to church more regularly. Start serving in a team. Join a small group. Ask someone to just go for a coffee with them and commit to doing those things. Let me tell you, some of you who are not doing life in this way, you are missing out. And this has become one of my biggest things um, that I preach everywhere I go because I know how much it's changed my life. Stop listening to this lie of independency and break the lie which says, I don't need anyone else but me. One of our biggest strengths can be to, to surround ourselves with the strength of others. Folks, we need to learn to be vulnerable with one another so that we can be praying for one another. If they don't know what's going on in our lives and our hearts, then they cannot be praying for them. Let's break the lives which say, I don't need anybody but myself. Let's be radical and do life differently to the rest of the world. That's the way that, that Jesus did it, and that's the way I believe he has called us to do it. And whilst I'm talking about friendships and prayer, there's also another thing which I want to address. I think, again, this is for my generation in particular, but I think it is for the body of church. In the story of Exodus, the Egyptians start complaining and grumbling, and poor Moses gets it in the ear. <clears throat> Before they're, when they're at the Red Sea, and once they're even through, the Egyptians keep saying to Moses, I want to be... Um, uh, Israelites, sorry, keep saying, Egyptians, keep saying, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be back in, Israelites, want to be back in Egypt, sorry, want to be back in Egypt with the Egyptians because do you know what? Our life there was better. Yes, they treated us badly, but do you know what? We had food, we knew what we were doing, it was all good back there. I don't want to be here. They just keep like grumbling and grumbling and complaining about their life there. The people grumbled, but Moses went to God and asked him. Grumbling amongst ourselves will not work. We have to go to God and petition. The Bible tells us petition in prayer, petition our request to him. Grumbling and complaining will not do. And do you know what? I think a, a modern day way that we do this nowadays is through social media. I think it is absolutely horrendous for this. Even yesterday, I was speaking to one of my friends who she was saying about how she tweeted a reply back to somebody and then afterwards she deleted it because of the controversy that it caused afterwards. Do you know what? I think this is even worse than complaining and grumbling to someone's face. At least they had the audacity to say it to Moses. 
We don't even have the audacity to say it to someone's face. We think, oh, I'm going to tweet it or write it on Facebook or Instagram. And then, oh, I'm going to hide behind that. Do you know what? If you're going to be mean to someone, at least say it to them. Sorry. <laughs> but don't be mean to anyone. Don't do that, though. <laughs> During that really hard time, one of the people that hurt me, she posted something on Instagram. And not only was it hurtful because I saw this picture on Instagram, but what was also doubly hurtful was all the people who were commenting it and liking it. And in liking and commenting on it, they were in agreement with that. And so for us, not only us doing it, but us liking and commenting on it, we are in agreement with that person. And that is not good. And do you know what is so horrendous is that sometimes, sometimes, it has actually led to death. Sometimes people have killed themselves because of comments on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these other horrendous social media sites. And I want to say something which might seem a bit radical. Come argue the theology with me um, afterwards. But I actually want to argue that I think that Facebook can actually be a bit of a modern day stoning because it can lead to death. And what does Jesus say about it? Jesus says, those of you who are without sin cast the first stone and they all walk away. And I want to say, are we without sin? Every one of our sins. And so therefore, we do not have a right to post that thing on Facebook, to post that thing on Instagram, to post that thing on Twitter. It is not our right. And I think if Jesus were here right now, he would be really hurtful that we are doing that to our brother and sister. And so I want to say, church, just like for a month, right, in your own life, be really thoughtful about what you are doing on social media and just bind your tongue and instead, bringing it back to my point, and instead petition it to God. The amount of times that people have come to me with really tough things in, in, in church, and I remember one girl in particular that she was coming to me and she was arguing with me about um, sex before marriage, and I want to sleep with my boyfriend, and da-da-da-da-da, and all of this, and someone else in my church was like, this is really wrong, you need to speak to her, and she's going around saying that this is okay, and um, I just went, right, just uh, go away and pray about it and see what the God says, and this other person in my church was like, is that your answer? I was like, yeah. She came back a week later in worship. She just wept. She turned to us and she said, I've got to stop sleeping with him. She prayed. She prayed about it. She's spoken to God. So whatever it is that is griping you that much, if it's really, really that bad, pray about it. Don't post about it. Pray about it. Someone might be living in a way which you might think is wrong. God might think is wrong. But it's not up to you to do that and to make that decision. In the message version of John 13.35, it says, Everyone will know that you are my disciples because you're love for one another. Folks, we have to be careful with the ways in which we speak to one another, particularly on social media. In posting something which cuts down your brother and sister, we are giving the enemy a free plate of food and saying, Here, feast on this. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to throw something to the enemy and say, come into this. I want you to pray that you listen wholeheartedly to the Spirit and that you find peace by the end of that month in this area with which you are taking your grievance. 
and that you would see the situation through the eyes of Jesus. I can promise you one thing, but by the end of that month, you will be changed. Mother Teresa said, God shapes the world by prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be, the mightier the forces against evil. There is an evil in this world that we must stand up against and be on the winning side. There's let's get loving, let's get praying, let's stick, let's stick it to the enemy and the rest of the world and let's love differently. Let's encourage one another with social media rather than pulling each other down. Billy Graham said to get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. The Bible tells us to always pray with all kinds of prayer and to never stop praying. Church, we need to be on our hands and knees. Max Lucado said, our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is, the one, is in the one who, who hears it and not in the one who sees it, our prayers do make a difference. We don't need to have strong and eloquent prayers. We just need to have a God who hears it and he hears it. Church, let's be marked by Jesus. Let's be known for the way that we intimately, compassionately, prayerfully, lovingly do life together. Let's be on our knees for one another so that we and the body of Christ might be changed forever. Jesus is coming back and I want him to look at his bride and say, I am pleased with you. I see the way that you love one another and I see the way that you have called out to me.